eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Go right down, baby. Yes, sir. Bears fans, this is Take the North. Covering every aspect of your Chicago Bears in their quest to retake the NFC North. We're going to take the North and never give it back. With your hosts, David Haw and Dan Weeder. Welcome back to Take the North. We are here to talk Bears today. I'm David Haw from 670 The Score and the Mully and Haw Show, joined by Dan Weeder from the Chicago Tribune. And we were going to wait until Friday, but Saturday was just way too exciting. <laughs> and there's way too much going on at Hallis Hall for us to wait any longer. You are here at Take the North podcast from Odyssey. You can get it on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are going to be here regularly this season. It is a new thing. It is a good thing. And Bears fans are going to enjoy what we have to say. And this week, Dan, we have a lot to get to. There was a 1914 victory in the Matt Eberflus debut on Saturday at Soldier Field. But the bigger news might have come today at Hallis Hall when uh, Roquan Smith remains one of those stories that won't go away. Yeah, David, a new character introduced into the miniseries on Monday with the NFL sending a memo to all the teams in the league advising them of a man named St. Omni who is apparently advising Roquan Smith in these contract negotiations and has been reaching out uh, to various teams around the league to gauge the trade market on behalf of Roquan Smith. As you know, this is a real no-no in the league, and the league wanted to make it very clear to teams around the league, many of whom had reached out to, to, to folks that we know. Brad Briggs had, had taken a couple uh, calls and messages from, from folks saying this is a weird situation, and there's this uh, character in the shadows reaching out asking us about interest in Roquan Smith. Part of the memo that the league sent out today said that Mr. Omni is prohibited from negotiating player contracts or discussing potential trades on behalf of any NFL player or prospective player or assisting in or advising with respect to such negotiations. So this is a non-certified NFLPA, uh, not certified by the NFLPA uh, spokesman working on behalf of Roquan, and it only makes the drama a little bit thicker. Monday's practice out at Hallis Hall was a very short session, but it's the first one that we didn't see Roquan Smith beside the practice field for. I don't know if he was in attendance at Hallis Hall today and just not there because it was a short session or if there's more to this story now. So again, as you mentioned, it's just more drama on top of a situation that didn't need more drama. Dan, Roquan Smith warmed up before Saturday's game at Soldier Field. He did conditioning drills. He has been 
at House Hall. It's a hold in more than it is a hold out. But I don't want to read too much into it. Everyone's got an opinion. Mine is it seems as if this latest development implies Roquan Smith's situation might be unraveling a little bit, getting out of control. It seems a little bit erratic. It is unprofessional. I don't know if this is the way you want to go about getting your way for staging a protest. I don't know if he's winning. And I don't think there's a lot of uh, Bears fans out there that are clamoring for Roquan Smith to get into camp. I think they have other things on their mind. Did he misread the way that his protest would be received? It's a great question, David. And erratic is a good word that you use. And I had uh, a message from someone in the league that said this is not a good look and not a great impression. And if you're trying to make a good impression on other teams around the league to, to convince them that they would be uh, in uh, w- well served by, g- by giving you a hundred million dollars and giving away draft capital to, to acquire you. Then you want to be a little bit smoother in how you show the rest of the league that you do business. Roquan's a little bit sloppy right now with the way things are going. And, and to your point, I, I really felt like that statement issued a week ago uh, through Ian Rappaport of the NFL network was a power play by Roquan Smith, partially designed to rally support, right? It's the reason that he used uh, the names of Wilbur Marshall and Mike Singletary and Dick Buckus and Brian Urlacher trying to uh, play to the emotions of Bears fans that say, yeah, you're our next all-time great and we want you here no matter what. Pay the man. And he was expecting this flood of uh, of support. And I feel like the the at best, the reaction of fans has been split. Some people saying, yeah, he, he deserves to be paid and others saying, he, he, you know, I don't know that he's on that level. And so if he's not here, so be it. The other part of this, David, that I mentioned uh, throughout the weekend is that Roquan also is not in a locker room where there are 50 plus guys who are are railing to have his back. There's a lot of guys in that locker room who have never played a snap with Roquan Smith, right? Outside of practice. And so what you don't have this this group that is like, we've been together for five years. We're gonna we're gonna have you no matter what. And so there's a lot of guys on that defense and in that locker room that are like, if he's here, he's here. If he's not, he's not. And so that part of the battle, I don't think Roquan's winning. So I wonder this, Dan, if it's fair to to ask, you know, this is a, a big week because the Bears have to go to Seattle on Thursday for a game. That means they leave on Wednesday. Ideally, the Bears would have him locked up before then. I don't know how realistic that is. I also don't think it's very good timing for him to make his argument when the NFL uh, Network releases its top 100 players. <laughs> I said this uh, the, on the radio this morning in the Molly Haw Show. I don't know if it's fair or not, but it's a human reaction. He's 84th. He's 84th. That means yeah. there are 83 players deemed better than Roquan Smith by – People who evaluate such things, that's a heck of a place to be for a guy arguing that he wants $20 million a year. I can say that Roquan Smith is one of the top five uh, to eight outside linebackers, off-the-ball linebackers in the league, and yet I wonder if that's going to end up getting him the $20 million a year deal that uh, he reportedly seeks. Do you think it's bad timing? Do you think the clock is ticking louder? How will he respond? Well, we'll see. We'll see how it responds. I think you're right in saying the best five to eight, right? In, in, in that, in that sort of realm. And he's not in the top three in, in a lot of people's eyes in this league. You talk about Shaq Leonard and Fred Warner and Micah Parsons as being the guys that most people around the league put on the top shelf of, of inside linebackers in this league. And then you go down a shelf and it's, it's the Devin Whites and the Roquan Smiths and the Bobby Wagners and the Levante Davids, Demario Davis, Eric Kendricks. That, that, that's the class that Roquan's in. That's not an insult. People telling you you're a real good player is not an insult. They're just not telling you you're a superstar. And Roquan obviously perceives himself as a superstar – 
wants to be rewarded as a superstar and nothing in the outside world, nothing in his production through his first four years tells you that. Again, it's not an insult to say you're not a superstar. You're still a really good possibly great player and so now you've got to wrap your brain around that and figure out what that looks like going forward in terms of deadlines right the bears don't really have a deadline in this situation the bears are not expecting to contend for anything in 2022 so if rope one misses the month of september what does that mean to ryan poles and matt eberflus very little right sure they would like to have him in their defense sure they would like to build momentum and and, and see what he's all about there but this team it's not going to make the difference between whether this team in january has its arrow way up or way down right this is a long-term build for this team and so those games in September it don't mean a whole lot and it's not going to uh, push Ryan Poles into making rash decisions because he needs his his you know starting will linebacker on the field in week one last thing on this issue and I know you, it's probably an impossible question to answer but it does get raised when you have this kind of news come out about the letter to the, the rest of the league and the uncertified yeah. agent acting on his behalf. Does somebody <laughs> like uh, St. Omni uh, acting on Roquan's behalf and people kind of chuckling and wondering what this is and it seems unprofessional, does that undercut his credibility in these kind of talks or does it damage or diminish the, the claim, his claim that he does deserve what he is, what he wants to get paid because of the, the nature or the method with which he's trying to achieve it. So, so two things here. I joked in the Hallis Hall press room on Monday afternoon that if you looked up a Google image of St. Omni, it would be a picture of Roquan Smith with glasses and a mustache, right? Like this is, hey, it's uh, St. Omni. I'm just calling to see if you have any interest in Roquan Smith, right? Like that's that's the type of calls you envision happening to the Seahawks and the Chargers and the other teams that might be interested in a good Will linebacker. I think at the very least, it adds to the frustration that Ryan Poles and his contract negotiation team have felt since the very start of this and feeling like, man, we could make business happen a lot smoother and a lot more gracefully if we had somebody that was experienced in NFL contract negotiations. It's one thing to have sort of a, a broad brush look at how a deal should come together. It's another thing to have actually negotiated NFL contracts. And when you don't have that, all of a sudden it adds complicating factors and tension that doesn't need to be there. And it just really, really muddles up the process. And I think there's a, a level of agitation inside the front office right now at Hallis Hall uh, that isn't helping Roquan's cause to be certain. And, and, and hopefully uh, it doesn't impede this process to a, a point where we're still talking about this as our lead segment you know, into September. My last thought on this is that the longer this goes on, the more it favors the Bears. They have all the leverage here. And I do wonder at what point in time Roquan Smith needs to get some advice from some adult in the room and say, you, you need to compromise a deal, get the security, or else you're going to be forced to a situation. You're going to choose either not to play or play for the remainder of your contract, get paid nine and a half million dollars or whatever it is, and then risk being uh, playing under the franchise tag next year. So these are the kind of questions I hope somebody is raising and bringing to his attention because it's gone on far too long. There's no question about that. And hopefully they find a resolution very, very soon in some way, some way. All right. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Time for our opening drive. All right, Dan. So 1914 was the score. The Bears basically outscored the Chiefs reserves. The first team Chiefs offense moved the ball at will against the Bears defense and Certainly the, the Chiefs' number one defense frustrated the Bears' offensive line in the first third down. Michael Schofield, that's not a play that he wants to remember. But overall, I, before we get into some of these the specifics about Justin Fields, generally speaking, how would you describe what happened Saturday on the lakefront? Yeah, we'll have a segment to really dive into what we saw from Justin. But I think that, uh, you know, you know the old golden rule in the NFL. You never turn down a 1914 victory in August, right, David? So if you can walk out of Soldier Field with a, a feel good about the way that the, the, the twos responded in the second half. And I was joking with Mark Potash in the press box saying, can you do the research and find out if this is their biggest comeback in a preseason win since, you know, what year? I don't know. Obviously, the final result doesn't matter. But I think what you saw is what Matt Eberflus promised when he took the job, that his team was going to play with fire and passion and hustle and intensity. And in a lot of ways, you saw that from the culture that they've set in the spring and the summer. And you saw that from the types of players they brought in. Obviously, I think a lot of people walked away from their television set or from Soldier Field on Saturday afternoon and said, Jaquan Brisker plays the way a Matt Eberflus defense should play. Flying around, no regard for, for, for anyone right or anything, trying to make plays on the ball, or if not plays on the ball, plays on the person carrying the ball at all times. And so those are top, the types of positive scene uh, signs and, and, and things that you need to see from this team as they go forward to, to understand that there is going to be an identity to this group, and that's what it's going to look like. I also give Matt Eberflus a lot of credit, David, for for just, look, we, we talked about it at the end of the, the last episode that this was going to be his first time overseeing a game right and being on the headset and communicating and making decisions and doing all these other things it seemed to be a smooth operation all things considered with the context of it just being an early uh, August game in the preseason of his first season there were things there that you said okay that that looked competent and it didn't look sloppy and that's something to build on you know we'll have a combination of big picture observations and zeroing in on the details but I think for the first preseason game of the GM's tenure and the coach's tenure. I'm going to go big picture here. I think that, number one, as you pointed out, Matt Eberflus had a good day. The mechanics were sound. They got in and out of huddles. They were definitely uh, penalty-free. And I think that when you look at the mechanics of the coaching, it was solid by the entire staff. Luke Getzey huddling with Justin Fields on the sideline, that was valuable. And I think that's going to be a big asset for having – uh, the offensive coordinator right there for the young quarterback. I also loved seeing Matt Eberflus writing down notes to himself, wondering how many acronyms he could fit into one index card <laughs> during a, one series. But I do think in seriousness, that was good because he wants to learn from it. So I think from a coaching perspective, we saw evidence that the players were actually, you know, he, they were getting through to those players. Big picture from the GM perspective, you know, Ryan Poles, I'll be the first to tell you and have and repeated myself He's had a clumsy offseason up mm-hmm. to this point off the field in terms of eva- in terms of administration duties. Like 
you know, for any, we don't need to go relitigate it, but Larry Ogunjobi and some of these other things were sort of missteps or inexperience type of type of things. And yet there are two phases to a GM to me, the administrative aspect of the job and then the evaluation part of it. And I think what Saturday we saw was Ryan Poles might be a pretty decent talent evaluator, very small sample size, very small, probably, yeah, probably a, a gross overreaction. But this rookie class has some talent. You mentioned Brisker. We saw Braxton Jones. We saw a lot of examples. Jack Sanborn, not going to get carried away by that guy. But you know what? <laughs> he deserves some praise. That rookie class as a whole looked like a bunch of guys that they knew what they were doing when they were drafting them. Well, and the the, the footnote to that uh, on, a, on a negative side is we didn't get to see Kyler Gordon or Velas Jones, right? And these two guys now have to, uh, they're back on the practice field Monday. Uh, we'll see what their, what their playtime load looks like if there is any playtime on Thursday in Seattle. But those are guys that you're counting on in a major way, both on offense and defense to to help you. And so they need to get those guys back on the field. Uh, I, I Look, I, th- I think they went after a specific brand of player in this draft obviously took a bunch of offensive linemen on day three, but wanted hungry football players who are athletic. And we saw a bunch of that on Saturday. And you, you, Dominique Robinson, another guy who flashed, obviously had a sack that the Chiefs basically gave to him. But still, he was there and ready to make his play when it was there. And so that's uh, certainly a promising sign. And as you know, a lot of this stuff ultimately will circle back to the guy that the previous regime drafted, wearing a number one jersey, who is going to be the number one spotlit guy that, that we watch for for most of the year. So let's talk about Justin Fields. I thought in going four of seven, he saw some good things. We saw some things that were reminders of that he's a, a work in progress, some things that look very familiar from his rookie season. Um, overall, how would you assess the step that he took and how big it was on Saturday? Well, I like Justin's own self-assessment after the game when he came to the podium uh, and was asked to, to, to kind of evaluate 18 snaps, right? They, they ran 18 snaps over three drives on Saturday, and Justin said it was all right. It was all right. It was it was in that very ho hum Justin tone, and I agree with them. It was all right. You know, there were some things that were were nice and some things that were not so nice. And at the end of the day, it was it was all right. And and so there there is a lot there. Um, obviously, I think throughout the year we're going to put our spotlight on Justin and and do a QB one segment after he plays games and maybe. Some of these games will be Trevor Simeon's QB1 uh, option to, to be reviewed. But I think, Justin, like it, when, when I start, right, the defining moment for me, David, was the 26-yard pass to Darnell Mooney, which was – I wrote about it after the game. It was the biggest play for the Bears from scrimmage on the day. And it also might have been the biggest play in significance to their long-term potential because in my mind, listening to both Darnell and Justin describe the play after the game and Justin label it as routine, which was his indicator that when he got up to the line of scrimmage, recognized the coverage he was getting, saw the receiver that he loves – in the slot with a matchup he liked and said, this is going to be a big gain. That confidence comes from preparation. That confidence comes from chemistry with one another. That confidence comes with knowing what you're seeing and being able to execute against what you're seeing. And so that pass with, with Darnell running a very crisp route, getting a nice little pick from, from Equinemius St. Brown, Justin putting the ball where only Darnell could get it, and then Darnell going to get it, that's a big sign, right? It's one small play from an August game that ended, uh, you know, that, that with a drive that ended in a punt, but it tells you that your quarterback and your top receiver are on the same page and everybody else better follow suit. I'll go with the defining moment, the pass completion to Tajay Sharp. That was the only other big play that really Justin Fields had uh, that was a positive play, and I think that because – of the way it went down is why I would call it defining. He's going to need some help from his receivers. He's going to need some luck. 
he had both on that play. It wasn't – I am not going to be the one necessarily like a lot of people in town and across the country to gush over the type of throw that it was. Yeah. I'm not so sure it was that great of a throw. I'm with you. It ended up being exactly where it needed to be. I'm not sure if that was accidental or on purpose because if you have a different defensive back with one with a little bit more uh, experience or savvy, he might have picked that off and gone the other way, as it was. You know, Justin Fields read what he read, got rid of it just as he got hit, and put it to the one spot that Tajay Sharp came down with the ball that probably should have been an incompletion, but it wasn't. And that now we're ca- calling it a great throw, and the, it moved the chain. So I think that it was defining in that it underscored just how much luck and help Justin Fields is going to need this year from his teammates and just from the, the football gods. That's not a criticism. But I think overall, my reaction to his play on Saturday was similar to his reaction. Okay, fine, good. Yeah, no doubt about it. it but it, it brings me to the the on the bright side portion of this review, which I think, number one, you, you talk about huddle mechanics, right? They got in and out of the huddle. They didn't have sloppiness. They didn't have pre-snap penalties. They seemed to know what they were seeing. And on that play, to Tajay Sharp, before the throw, there's several things that Justin does, right? He recognizes pressure coming from his left. He adjusts the protection. Okay, Good sign from a young quarterback. Gives a hand signal out to his right to Tajay Sharp saying, hey, we've got, we've got, you know, it's coming hot here. You better be ready. I'm going to come to you with a specific kind of route. Tajay Sharp acknowledges and, and, and runs the route the way it is. And then Justin stands in. The protection adjustment didn't stop all the pressure from getting home. And Justin takes a hit as he throws that ball. And the willingness to stand in there, convert a third and nine. I think it was a 19-yard gain on the play. Those are big moments in the regular season that we're going to be talking about if your starting quarterback can convert third and nine, keep it drive going, prevent a, you know, a punting situation and turn it into a field goal or maybe a touchdown. All of a sudden you've got, you've got things that you can build on. And in that regard, I thought Justin was sharp. I will stay with you on the bright side there. His recognition was a, a plus. And I think that Luke gets, had to be pleased with the way that he made some uh, pre-snap decisions, which I think were always an issue last year, but they were trying to do a lot more last year and turn to complicate themselves and I, th- I really like the way that Getsy approached Saturday. So I think that was something on the bright side. In the uh-oh category, yeah. our next category, I think that there's still a tendency for Justin Fields, like any young quarterback, to come off his first read too quickly. Now, we're only judging seven passes or so. So I know that everyone else's uh-oh is, is the the slide that he could have done better. You can get to that. I will. But I'll stick with the the first read, you know, not very coming off and not maybe being patient or – making the first read and making the simple throw and not trying to move off it too fast, play too fast. Sometimes that's always a concern. Can you handle the speed of the game? Sometimes a quarterback in Justin Fields' case can can play faster than the, than the tempo. And I think he, could, he can get ahead of himself a little bit. If he's just a little bit more patient, maybe a little bit more composed, the decision-making will become more natural. And I think that's going to be the evolution that, that we see, but we just we didn't see it because Saturday was his first time out. So my oh moment ties into that, and it is, as you mentioned, it's the scramble and the slide and the sack. That play is a zero-yard gain, and it goes in the scorebook as a sack because Juan Thornhill comes in and, and, and makes you make a decision – 
that you don't want to make. It was a little bit of a clumsy slide by Justin. And he takes a, a hit that, that most of Bears Nation thinks should have resulted in a, a five-year jail sentence for Juan Thornhill or at the very <laughs> least a 15-yard penalty. But I, I was very curious to uh, know how Luke Getze judged that because from the press box, David, when it was happening in live motion, you get that bird's eye view and you say, boy, Justin just took off from a, a pocket that was pretty clean. And you don't want that to happen when, when, when you're trying to go through things. And so I asked Getze on Monday exactly what he saw in that sequence. Here was his uh, response. Yeah, that, that was good. I mean, he, he, he vacated too quickly. You know, he, he skipped number two in the progression. He kind of went left, right, and then and, and, uh, they took away number one. So that was a great job by him of getting back. But then I think he just he got out of there a little too quick. And, and you know, that was the one play, honestly, that I, I wish we had back for him. And uh, the other guys each had, had, had one or two that were the same thing, where we just kind of all – where we, we haven't done that in the last couple of weeks here out, out here. But the, the flow of the game, it speeds everything up a little bit. So uh, I like – you know, I, I love the decision to slide, obviously. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he had a chance to maybe hang in there just a tick longer. I like what he had to say, Dan. I think I like a lot of what I heard from Luke Getze. His second week in a row, I found myself listening to him speak at House Hall, nodding along with him and admiring the common sense approach that he has taken, not only to maybe coaching this young quarterback and running this offense, but also in explaining what he's doing and the standards that he's going to set here. Well, one more thought from Luke Getze. I asked him following that just what he does to coach a quarterback through those situations to, to, to maybe help him understand you can stay in there a, a tick longer and the play may result in a bigger gain for us and certainly not in a play that gets you hit by a, a safety who's coming in to take your head off. Yeah, that, that's experience. I mean, he's 23, right? I mean, like that's, that's you can only get that by playing and, and practice is, is great. Uh, but it's not a game, and so that's you know that's why it's important that he gets a few reps each of these preseason games just to get get that uh, under his belt. And then I think you know the more he plays this year, the better he's going to get that feeling. And pocket presence is not a easy thing to teach, um, but he's got the toughness and the guts to do it. So like that's the you know when you're when you're evaluating quarterbacks, that's one of the first things I'm looking for is does somebody have the have that uh, willingness to stand in there, make a throw with their feet in the ground, and get smacked in the in the jaw. So, and he definitely has that. David, you hear Luke there, and 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 I'm very appreciative of his willing to be critical of his starting quarterback and be very illuminating with the way he describes things. And so he's willing to to, to highlight some positives, willing to point out some negatives, and really be honest with the feedback that he not only gives Justin behind the scenes, but that he gives the rest of the world in terms of the 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 speed and the rate and the the current status of Justin's development. Because the criticism isn't really that critical. The the, the coaching points come out as helpful more than harmful in terms of being attacking or being, you know, even insulting or he does it with a tone that always seems like he's trying to get the most out of the player. And I think players eventually respond to that. And you're also talking about the guy. Let's remember his frame of reference. And we're never going to forget it because we'll remember it every time that we hear from Luke Getze. He coached the MVP. You know, he's coming from a situation where. Aaron Rodgers didn't make many of these mistakes. He had outgrown yeah. them 12 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever the case. So he's adjusting to seeing somebody that's the finished product to somebody who is, you know, the, this mo, the, this big mo, clay, and he's going to mold it into hopefully a franchise quarterback. So he's got to be excited about that. But the way that he has approached it gives you a lot of confidence that he knows what he's doing. 
I've got more thoughts on that, and Luke's got more thoughts on that in a minute. It leads us perfectly to, to my big number from Saturday's game, and my big number is the zero that was hanging on the scoreboard under the name Bears at halftime. The first unit offense had three series. They picked up four first downs, 78 yards or 76 yards. I have to double-check that, and didn't put points on the board, and that has to change, right? We can do all this praising of the little things, all this praising of these throws that produce 20-yard gains and convert third downs and whatever else it is. You have to score points in the NFL. And David, for me, the contrast was there when the Kansas City Chiefs took their opening possession of the game and sent out Patrick Mahomes. And Patrick Mahomes said, hey, you want to watch this? Bing, bing, boom, 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 boom. 11 plays, 72 yards, touchdown. Mahomes was so efficient on that drive, David, that you, you go watch his press conference from after Saturday's game, and Chiefs reporters are asking him about the one incompletion he threw. What happened, Patrick? Right? Like, so surprised that it wasn't seven for seven that they're asking him what happened on the incompletion while we're fixated on Justin Fields hitting these throws to Tajay Sharp and Darnell Mooney. And it's just a, a reminder that if the Bears want to be great, right? That is the goal. They want to be great. They need their franchise quarterback to be great. They need to raise the the bar and they need to get this stuff out of there. And so just really quick, I asked Luke, obviously what you just mentioned, when you spend all this time in green Bay and you, you're with a four time MVP quarterback and you're with a well-oiled machine as an offense, and then you come here and you've got to take on this work in progress project. How do you kind of calibrate your patience levels and change your perspective, knowing that this isn't going to be that here's what he had to say there. Yeah, I think there's a there's a balance in my you know from the experience. There's a balance between demand and patience, and uh, setting an expectation and letting them know it's not okay for some things. And then at some points, you have to always remember to uh, to go pat them on the back too, and let them know that you care about them too. Because I do, and 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 uh, but there's got to be a demand too. There's got to be an expectation. Uh, we have we set our standards really high, and I don't really care if it was three months or three years into this thing. Though. So we got to make sure we go meet those standards. Now, I hate comparing one regime to the other because I think it's, it's counterproductive and irrelevant most of the time. But I am struck by how, how Luke Getze speaks in a way that he never seems like he's trying to prove how smart he is or yeah. where he came from. And he's not the one necessarily reminding us that he did come from Green Bay and he did coach a four-time MVP. And this is an adjustment for him because I don't think that he, uh, at least early on, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't see many signs of a large ego. And sometimes that can saddle uh, a coach, uh, as we have seen here in Chicago, whether it's a position coach or the head coach or a coordinator. But I don't sense that yet from Luke Getze, and that's refreshing. Not only do you not sense it, you hear from people around the league that have worked with them, whether it's Nathaniel Hackett, who's now the head coach in Denver, whether it's the praise of a guy like Aaron Rodgers, who loved his time with Luke Getze, whether it's Devontae Adams, who worked with him originally as a receivers coach and says, man, this guy is an absolute wonderful coach and he's a tremendous communicator. And now we're getting to experience that communication style that he has, just how natural and organic and direct and honest it is without any of that extra ego uh, to, to, to frost it over. And so you, you listen to him there in that clip. He says, there's got to be a demand. There's got to be an expectation. This is what Bears fans have been yelling at their televisions for 25 years now, right? Like raise the bar, raise the bar, Bears organization. And so I'm thrilled that the guy who, who may be one of the most 
three important people in the building right now, and Luke Getze, is making sure that, that Justin Fields and the rest of that offense understand where the bar is and that there's a demand and an expectation, and he doesn't care if it's the third month of the third year. He's going to make sure that they understand exactly what it is they're trying to get done. That's wonderful stuff. Last thought on Fields the, with Steve Spagnolo throwing some blitzes <laughs> at him. I think that uh, in, in Seattle on Thursday night, you never know what they're going to have in store. Pete Carroll and Sean Desai, who's the associate head coach, and that defense may come after him. And I hope they do because that's the best way you learn. That's the best way you progress. And I hope he gets more than 18 plays because that will be the next challenge. And if you want to raise the bar, it gets a little bit higher out in Seattle. Yeah, there's no tried and true formula anymore. Uh, it's not the four-game preseason uh, schedule that we're used to. And so every team and every coaching staff has a different way of divvying up their playing time. It's going to be interesting to see how how Flus and company handles this one on, a, on, a, on an abbreviated week, right? They go out Thursday night to play this one. And obviously, they want to get some important work done and, and obviously get back on that plane with everyone healthy. Hey, everyone. This is Brett Boone. Would you know it? I've got a podcast going strong in our fourth year. Tune in as I sit down with my friends, some of the biggest names in sports, media, entertainment, for a lot of fun and in-depth conversations. As you know, baseball's been my life. It's been in the family for a long time, but it's a lot more than that here. It's sort of like taking a ride in a golf cart around a beautiful track. Join me every week for multiple episodes on the Brett Boone podcast, available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's give out some game balls. All right, I'm going to start with one because I mentioned him before. I think he was the guy that probably went home with the biggest smile after the game. <laughs> Local guy made good, Lake Zurich's very own, and also the pride of Wisconsin, Jack Sanborn, who I guess at practice on Monday got a little bit of a promotion to the second team, Dan. Is that correct? And now well, he is going to be one of these linebackers. You can envision him being a four-phase guy. He's got a real shot to make a team after a strong showing Saturday that included a takeaway. So it's it's wonderful, as you know, when you're in the newspaper business to write a story and then have that story really get the spotlight uh, on game day. And I, I wrote a story going into the game about the five local kids, right, playing their first game for the Chicago Bears. Jack Sanborn, uh, Micah Du Treadway, James O'Shaughnessy, Doug Kramer, Michael Schofield, as we talked about. And Sanborn was a guy I sat down and had a chance to talk to last Last week or two weeks ago now and said that the first game that he ever watched in the NFL was Super Bowl that the Bears and the Colts played in. And it was like this moment at six years old in first grade where he was like, wow, my family's really into this Sunday. And he tunes in and he watches you know, Devin Hester kick return and that, 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 that game that we all remember. And you say, boy, one, I'm old. If, if he was six, when that happened and two, this guy has an appreciation for the opportunity he has in front of him to play for his hometown team. You mentioned it on Saturday, an interception, a fumble recovery, a tackle for loss on Ronald Jones, a tackle on punt coverage, another tackle on kick coverage. This is a guy who's trying to show this coaching staff that he can do a lot of different things and be reliable in a lot of different ways. And I think you are very justified in giving that speech and flipping that game ball to, to, to Jack at the end of that day. That's pretty cool stuff. Can I give out another one? Jaquan Brisker. He was tremendous. He came ready to prove something. He likes to hit. He's physical. He is he cleans uh, up piles. He tackles with authority. He's fundamentally sound, and I like that he's not phased by much. So he had a heck of a series that showed you, even though it may have been against chief reserves or whoever, he was a rookie as well, and he flashed, and he showed you what the Bears saw when they made him 
their second pick in the second round. So I was lining up to give my game ball to, to Sam Warren, but I had a second one to give out to rookie running back Treston Ebner, right? And this is another guy starts the game with a 34-yard kickoff return. And you say, okay, little sizzle there. This guy can get out and, and maybe be an answer for them in the kick return game if they decide Valus Jones is not the guy they want as their, their number one kick returner. Well, then he gets in on offense, and there's that cut that he makes, right, on the big 27-yard run that made a lot of Twitter go real nuts for a few minutes with the, the, the cut that Tristan Ebner made. But Luke Getze mentioned it on Monday. As much as the cut that got him in the open field, it was the way he finished the run, lowered his shoulder, and got an extra five or six yards on the end of that run because he was willing to do what Brisker did, as you just mentioned, and, and lower his head and be physical and be intense and finish. That's a big sign. And then he obviously scores the Bears' first touchdown of the preseason on a 12-yard catch from Trevor Simeon, right? And one of the reasons the Bears drafted Ebner is because they believe he can be a weapon in the passing game. They think he runs good routes. They think they can use him in a lot of different ways as a pass catcher, whether it's out of the backfield or spread out as a receiver. And there is obvious potential here. Now, obviously, you know, the path onto the field and the path to playing time for young running backs in this league is understanding how to pass block, right? And understanding how to pick up blitzes and be a reliable pass protector so your quarterback doesn't get killed. Justin Emmer's got some work to do there, but he didn't take away from me throwing him the game ball and saying, good job, Rook. Let's see what you got the next time out. Let's, let's finish up with the two-minute drill. All right, Dan, I got three quick points I want to make. Number one, I will say that the field was unacceptable. I will be oh, that guy that overreacts. I will no. be the one that says it hasn't gotten any better. It has nothing to do with Arlington Heights, but it needs to be better, and the Bears should be a little bit embarrassed, and the city should as well, because that is no way to stage an NFL game because of the danger it pre- presents, and they're lucky that nobody got hurt. It's a joke. Andy Reid said that uh, it was uh, better than his high school field, but not by much, right? That's not the type of review of your field that you want. You had a lot of people weighing in from agents to uh, J.C. Treader, the head of the NFLPA. You, 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 you've got to figure out a way to, 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 to put out a better product. It's like everything the Bears do, right? Like you have to, to want more, right? Like you have to want more out of what you do for others, right? And, 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 and the, the impression that you give. And in this regard, I don't know, David, you've been around longer than I have. I don't know what the staunch resistance has been forever in getting field turf put down on that field, uh, because I certainly think that would take away a lot of this conversation really quick. I, I have written a lot about this. I have talked a lot about this in, in, over the years. The Bears remain staunchly in favor of, of uh, natural grass because they believe the studies that they have conducted. I don't have the data in front of me and they haven't shared it but they believe that they are reducing injuries by staying with what they're staying with. I don't know that that's the case. It doesn't seem valid to me. Um, But I also worry this, Dan, as this becomes more politically charged over the next five years, if they indeed are moving to Arlington Heights, what motivation will the city have to give the Bears a a field that, that it deserves, that the league deserves, that every player deserves? Because, hey, they're leaving and they're unhappy and it's a bad relationship. So you wonder if they're going to be motivated to to, you know, spruce things up before they walk out that door. That would be ugly, and the field certainly was ugly on Saturday. And I think Brad Biggs looked it up, and there's three more concerts before the Bears open the regular season on September 11th against the 49ers. Let's hope they figure out a way to get that thing looking better. Yeah, I'm blaming Elton John more than Mother Nature. I think that's uh, fair to say. Well, there's a Ramstein concert coming up, so let's see what they do to the field. I don't know if I have tickets for that. I'm more of a country guy. All right, two, two other little things, Dan, I think the Bear mentioned for me. Trevor Simeon, I think, looks sharp. I think the Bears can feel very good about their backup quarterback. I wanted to say that because he did. He will play in the season, yeah. 
yeah, he could play this year, given how much Justin Fields. We saw, God forbid, Zach Wilson went down for the Jets. You don't know when you have a quarterback on the move what's going to happen. But I like Trevor Simeon's debut. Also, maybe you can expand on this a little bit. The offensive line remains in a state of flux. Very curious. I like what Braxton Jones did. Michael Schofield had that bad sack, but it's one play. Uh, Riley Reef did not play. But, Dan, to me, one of the bigger developments was at practice on Monday, Tevin Jenkins, who did get a little bit of extended run, he was with the second-team offense at right guard, and I wonder what that means. Well, so that was one of the three nuggets I had written down on my, on my sheet, and that is something that I'm going to be watching very closely Thursday when they play the Seahawks because they've obviously made a switch there. Tevin played 36 snaps at tackle in the preseason opener. There were some good moments, some bad moments, and obviously he's not competing anymore for the starting tackle positions, right? They feel good there. They took Braxton Jones out after 18 snaps, which tells you he's their week one starter at left tackle, right, and that they want to protect him as much as they want to protect the rest of the starters. And so now it's up to Tevin to figure out if he can handle the right guard position. Luke Getze said in their system, the guard position is more mentally taxing and they think it's it's a, a, something that Tevin can handle. Well, now you got to go out and show somebody, whether it's the Bears or someone else, somewhere else in the league uh, that you can play and you can be a part of their program. And it's a, it's a big couple weeks coming up for Tevin Jenkins. I'm looking forward to seeing Kyler Gordon in Seattle, back home, in his NFL debut for the Bears, he practiced on Monday. Let's hope he stays on the field. The biggest ability is availability. And as good as Brisker played in the first game on Saturday, those two guys together, that should excite Bears fans. So I hope that Kyler Gordon gets a good run against the Seahawks. So I'm going to give you a receiver to watch on Thursday. We gave you Tajay Sharp last week. I hope you made your prop bets on that <laughs> Tajay Sharp catches <laughs> wherever you go. But Dante Pettis is a guy who, if he can stay healthy, can win a roster spot here. And he hit the big reception from Trevor Simeon to convert a fourth and two on a route that came open out of the slot and a really nice pitch and catch from two veterans. That's a guy, again, with, with all the attrition in the receiving core and all the moving parts, some some of these veterans have a chance to really show themselves to the coaching staff. Pettis had some moments on Saturday that were bright. He'll get more there. The other thing I want to watch some more of is Matt Eberflus, right? And just watching him handle games. And so I've mentioned this all week, and it's a small moment, but I think it's a big moment at the same time. Matt Eberflus, the proud new owner of a red challenge flag. I don't know if he keeps it in his sock or his pocket or in his hat or wherever else it is, but Matt threw his first challenge flag on Saturday. And he won his challenge and a nine yard gain turned into an incompletion. And what that did for the Bears was push the Chiefs from third and one to third and ten. And then the next play, Jack Sanborn stepped up and intercepted the ball. And then after Jack Sanborn intercepted the ball, the offense took a short field and went on a 27-yard touchdown march. And you said, boy, this all started with someone up in the booth saying, hey, Matt, challenges. Matt reacting quick enough to get the flag down, challenging properly, winning a challenge, and then the snowball built, right? And this is something we haven't seen from past coaching staffs enough, the ability to turn good coaching decisions into moments that can mean more. That's one, if it happened in the regular season, we'd be talking about it for two days. We'll mention it here on the show. That's a great point, because when I talk about evidence of coaching, you're looking for little moments in the game that a decision makes a difference on the scoreboard or on the field, change of possession. And that was it because of that challenge. And I do think this and again, I don't like the comparison, but Matt Eberflus had the presence of mind. He wasn't caught up in calling the next series. He wasn't caught up in yelling at the referees at that time. He wasn't caught up in anything except for what was happening in real time. In that moment, he was present, and he had the presence of mind to make the decision to make the challenge. Now, he's going to be wrong sometimes, but yeah. in this first case, he was right, and it made an impact. So I'm glad you pointed that out because overall, Flusi had a good day. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And you know what they say, David, they say this in the podcasting business. They say it in the NFL. You make your biggest jump from episode one to episode two. I think we just did it, didn't we? I think we did. I think you <laughs> like that. I think it's a great segue. All right. Thank you for joining the Take the North podcast. If you want to reach us, it's at Take the North pod on Twitter, or it's at Dan Weederer, W-I-E-D-E-R-E-R, or at David Haw. You can read Dan in the Chicago Tribune at chicagotribune.com. You can listen to me every morning, 5.30 to 10 o'clock on The Score or on your Odyssey app with the Mully and Haw Show. Adam Studzinski helped us again today. We'll hear more from Studs next time, and we will be there after the Seahawks game. We're hoping to tape a pod on Friday after Dan gets over the jet lag or the short night, or I'll be in Vegas. So I don't know if I'll be going to bed on Thursday night, Dan. We'll just have to wait and see about that. But whatever the case, thanks for joining us. We will talk to you next time on Take the North Podcast.